Radio Mano Papachango. First of all, this episode is with a couple of dudes who spent a lot of time in China. They're very prominent, um, well, they were very prominent China-based YouTubers. They Both of them have uh, well over 100,000 subscribers to the YouTube channel um, talking about China. They've got YouTube shows uh, where they travel around China and, and um, introduce you to different aspects of the culture and the landscape and the food and, and everything. Uh, really interesting guys. They're not in China now. They weren't in China when I recorded this a few weeks ago. Um, uh, but we talk a lot about what's going on over there, what's been happening, the history of China, the um, intricacies of um, teaching there, living there, having relationships with um, Chinese women and, and their families and the government and the whole thing. Fascinating, really interesting guys. Um, Winston and Matthew are their given names, but they go by Serpent Z-A, Serpent Z-A is the screen name of Winston. And Lao Y86 is the screen name of uh, Matthew. Um, Yeah, you look them up on YouTube, you can see their stuff. They're also very um, talented filmmakers um, and as I said, fascinating guy. So I really enjoy this conversation and uh, I know you will as well. Uh, I do want to say this is a slightly abbreviated episode in the sense that I'm not going to play any music and the intro is going to be quick and dirty because I'm using a friend's computer. My computer is in the shop and um, so I don't have access to my normal software and musical collection and so on and so forth. Uh, I do want to tell you, though, those of you who have Spotify, I finally uh, responded to the people who've been asking me to put up some sort of a Spotify playlist. Uh, I managed with the help of <laughs> younger, more technologically savvy friends to figure out how to upload a bunch of music and set up a playlist. So if you look on Spotify, um, I I don't know what the link is, but uh, Chris Ryan's five-star playlist, I think it's called. Uh, Just search that. It's a public playlist. You can find it. A few hundred people already have. So it's on there, and uh, I'll keep updating that and adding things as I remember other songs that I, pieces of music I love. So it, it ranges all over the place. There's world music, blues, uh, classic rock, uh, some classical pieces, um, just, you know, stuff that I consider to be top shelf music is on there. So I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to play any transitional music into this conversation uh, with Matt and Winston, but I am going to talk about My newest sponsor. That's right. I have a sponsor even in these crazy, crazy days. Um, The company is Kettle and Fire. Um, You've probably heard of them if you are a healthy eater uh, and not a vegetarian. 
they make uh, various things. The, the thing that I've been using a lot recently is their bone broth. Uh, they make a bone broth. Uh, I use the chipotle beef flavored. And their stuff is really, really good. It's very tasty and it's healthy. It's no GMO, no hormones, no um, additives of any sort. It's uh, no preservatives. It's no antibiotics. You know, whatever nasty shit that you do not want to be eating, it's not in this stuff. Uh, made with grass-fed, finished beef bones, and the stuff that I use. I use it for my chili. It is so good. It is really tasty. Very healthy, uh, paleo, keto friendly, uh, you know, ketogenic. Uh, is it ketogenic or keto? I think it's ketogenic, gluten free, and so on and so forth. So forth. Uh, fantastic company. I they came to my attention. I was using the product, but then I forget what happened. Like I think the CEO of the company had read Civilized to Death and posted something online. Uh, about how he enjoyed it and how he was trying to incorporate some um, principles of prehistoric uh, social organization into the way he was running the company or something like that. And so that's how we started corresponding. And um, and then uh, we decided to set up a sponsorship. So if you want to try this stuff, they deliver it. You don't need to you know risk your life going to a grocery store. You can have it delivered right to your house. You want to go to kettleandfire.com slash Chris Ryan. Kettle, K-E-T-T-L-E-A-N-D-F-I-R-E. You know how to spell kettle and fire, right? Dot com slash Chris Ryan. And use the code Chris, C-H-R-I-S, and you get 15% off your whole order. Shipping's free when you order six or more items. Um, as I said, I have used the bone broth and I love it. They sell lots of other things. They're shipping me some of those things and I will be sampling them soon. And next time I'll tell you about my experience with the other things. Um, I have friends who use their stuff and they speak very highly of it. I can personally speak for the Chipotle beef bone broth, which has gone into my last three batches of chili and I'm not looking back. All right. Kettle and fire dot com forward slash Chris Ryan. Use the code Chris 15% off. I'm done talking about that. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt and Winston. Uh, you know, China, what the hell, like it or not, whatever your feelings are about Chinese culture, China is going to be part of your life, especially for you youngins. It's going to be a bigger part of your life than it was or has been in my life, China is definitely a force to be reckoned with. They're buying up farmland all over the world, buying up mineral rights. They're fishing, you know, off the coast of Mozambique. They're all they're in the Antarctic. They're everywhere. And um, yeah, you're going to have to deal with them. You're going to have to think about them. And uh, what Matt and Winston have to say about China and their position in the world is in some ways I don't know, I, kind of encouraging, I think, in the sense that um, from their perspective, well, I, I don't want to tell you what they say, but um, I, I know a lot more about China now than I did before I had this conversation, and I suspect you'll feel the same. Thank you for listening to the podcast, everybody. I will get my shit organized at least a little bit more when I get my computer back. It's one of those MacBook Airs 
with the shitty keyboard. Um, by the way, if you have a MacBook Air from I think 2018 or 29 early 2019 that has the butterfly keyboard that malfunctions, it uh, you know repeats keys, does all sorts of weird shit. It's definitely inferior keyboard. Apple has this program where they'll replace or fix the keyboard for free. Um, so look into that. If you've got one of those models, uh, go to apple.com and support or just Google Apple butterfly keyboard uh, repair. Um, and they'll do it for free. They probably don't advertise that a lot because it costs them money. But if uh, if you're in that position as I was, get it fixed. Although it means you might have to use a friend's computer for a week or two. Uh, all right, that's it for me. I hope you enjoy this. It's an honor to be in touch with you and uh, to be in this strange little community that we have. I got some wonderful responses to the What Makes This Book Great series. Uh, I'm going to continue with that. Uh, I really enjoy doing that. And um, so, yeah, I'll keep putting out um, additional content during this strange time that we're in as often as I can. I'm going to be probably hiding out in a national forest somewhere uh, starting in June. So I don't know how much access I'll have to Wi-Fi, but I'll cruise into town and upload some episodes every once in a while. So I'll be around one way or another. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. I, I I mean to read the names of people who send in, uh, who sign up to support the podcast. I'll get around to that one of these days. Um, but I want you to know every time somebody signs up to support the podcast, I get a, a notice from uh, the website and telling me so-and-so is, you know, signed up to support five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever it is. And uh, every time my heart does a little quiver of gratitude. So thank you for that. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here I am uh, in Colorado at a remote location. Uh, this is the second podcast I've recorded remotely. I swore off the remote recording, but I'm trying to get back into it in light of uh, current affairs. I'm with Matt and Winston, who are, uh, what are you known? For? What are your screen names or your, your YouTube channel? Well, my screen name is uh, Serpent ZA. I'm the original China YouTuber, the first guy to ever do it. And uh, my colleague is Lawai86. That's L A O W H Y 86. And I am the second YouTuber in China. All right. Are you guys in China now? We are not. Not we at have, the moment. We have since left due to uh, extenuating circumstances. Yeah. I looked at one of your videos this morning. Um, uh, I guess it was Matt. Um, mm -hmm. talking about how your feelings about China had changed. That was a very sure. moving video. That sort of right. went from one extreme to the other. Can you talk a little bit about the trajectory of your experiences in China? Absolutely. Um, just to start off, we we both moved to China. I think you moved to China a couple of years before me, right? Yeah, I, I arrived in February of 2006. Yeah, and I came in late uh, 2008, uh, we both came for different reasons. Winston, um, to sum up his story very quickly, you came on a business trip originally, that's right? That's right. I, so I, I got to Shenzhen, China, which, of course, is that's where iPhones are made. That's where the big tech sort of industry is. And I arrived there without any real expectations. It was a business trip. And in the three days I spent there, I just was blown away. It was such a vibrant, happening place. 
and I just decided this is where I wanted to live. So I went home, I sold all my my cars, my furniture, everything, and I flew over to Shenzhen to try and make a life for myself, not knowing anyone or anything. And uh, it's quite a story. I actually ended up homeless for a couple of days and uh, after I burned through my savings, but I managed to build myself from the ground up and uh, make a life for myself there. And that's kind of how I got How there. old were you at the and time, Winston? I was 25. So, you know, yeah. a young man, 25 years old, you've got plenty of energy and you can reinvent yourself. So. Exactly. You can sleep on sofas and uh, just sort of scrape the yes. bottom for a while and get by. Did you speak any, yeah. any Chinese? None, none whatsoever. I, I had to learn. It was a trial by fire because especially back then and even now, very few, in fact, no people spoke English in the city because mm. it's a migrant city. So you've got a lot of people coming from the rural areas. The only cities in China where people can kind of speak English are places like Beijing and Shanghai, and it's still very limited. So it, it was really just crazy. I was walking around trying sign language, trying to figure out how to buy things and get by. It was, uh, it was quite the adventure. Did you need a visa of some sort, or could you just show up? Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, my nationality is South African. I need a visa just to go to the bathroom. Uh, okay. okay. There's pretty much no country I can go to without a visa. And yeah. I went there on a business visa because um, I had gone there originally for business. So that's how I got my second visa to go. And I thought, hey, I'd be able to figure things out pretty quick and get a job and get a, a work visa but it turns out it was a very difficult situation it took me years to get everything on track yeah and i know you described the language barrier being insurmountable in some ways but did you feel culturally welcome I mean, were people smiling at you on the street or did you feel i mean i guess you didn't feel hostility if you decided that's where you wanted to live no, absolutely. You know, that's the one thing that blew me away about China and why I started my videos in the first place was just the the level of hospitality and openness towards foreigners. You know, foreigners are treated as a curiosity, at least back then they were, because so few foreigners are in China, even to this day. So you'd walk around and meet people that had never seen a foreigner in real life before. So it was an event for them. They'd want to take photos with you. You're sitting in a restaurant, you'd be invited over to a table and given free food and free drinks just so they could say that they met a foreigner. So, you know, it was I was blown away by the hospitality and uh, kindness and um, friendliness of the people. It turns out, though, that that can really switch really quickly to hostility given the right circumstances, you know. Right, which leads us back to, to Matt's video that I saw this morning. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say that your, ex I guess, your experience aligns with what Matt described in the video? Oh, yeah. I mean, as far as my experience is concerned, it took years and years and um, eventually things started to change in China. I, I always thought it was there. There were a couple of incidents like in 2008 when um, there were those activists trying to put out the Olympic torch for the 2008 uh, Olympics, you know, the free Tibet activists mm -hmm. and so on around the world in places like France. And when that made the news in China, all of a sudden I felt incredibly unwelcome. I'd get very like death stares from people on the street. I'd have people um, insulting me in Chinese as I walked past just because I was a foreigner. And I saw mm. that this this like um, pent up rage and um, nationalism is just there ready for the right time to be released. But it kind of died away. And about a, a couple of weeks later, everything went back to normal and everyone was uh, happy and uh, friendly again. <laughs> But there were plenty of incidents that led me to realize that this was just a kind of a surface level of hospitality and friendliness. And over the past couple of years, I'd say the last four to five years, 
we've seen things go downhill uh, drastically when it comes to the attitude towards foreigners. What do you think provoked Are there specific historical trends that you see uh, behind that? Like, you know, you described the protests against the uh, Olympics uh, being held in China Mm -hmm. as having provoked that sort of short, brief spasm. Do you see sort of larger historical trends that are uh, provoking what's happening over the last few years? Well, absolutely. I'll let Seamal talk a little bit about the opium wars in a second, but at least right now, um, the Communist Party of China has a very good mechanism to get out of a sticky situation. So whenever they make a mistake, a very blatantly obvious mistake that is starting to gain a lot of attention from the local populace, the first thing they do, and they do it every time, is to find a reason to blame foreigners for doing something against China and the Chinese people. Mm. So, for instance, when there was that big scandal a few years ago, the Bo Xi Lai, who was a kind of uh, Xi Jinping's, um, uh, I don't know, competition to become president at that time. Uh, and his wife poisoned a foreigner, and there was all this kind of killed a foreigner. And there was a big thing. It was all in the press. All of a sudden, they turned their attention to the Japanese Senkaku Islands, which they call the Diaoyu Dao, right. you know, the fishing islands. And they made this massive nationalist thing happen where everybody got mad with Japan, and it was state-sponsored, and they were blaring it out on TV and billboards everywhere and making it a thing. Everybody got so angry, they were running around smashing Japanese cars, overturning, you know, Japanese cars, smashing any kind of Japanese restaurant, that kind of thing. And it took the attention away from the domestic issue. And so every single time there's a big problem with the Chinese government or in China, they point the finger at the West. But like I was saying, maybe Matt can tell you a little bit more about where this all came from. So there is this thing called the century of humiliation. I think a lot of your listeners will probably know what that is. Uh, basically, when foreign powers, you had Germany, you had uh, the UK, forcing products into China and actually claiming their own little piece of China. And for Chinese people, that was humiliating, obviously, but it's something that was not left in the annals of history. It's something that was consistently and constantly pushed through education. And for a, for the you know for the longest time, the Chinese government has used no matter what government it was could have been the Qing Dynasty, it could have been the Nationalist government, it could have been the Communist Party. Throughout all this time, it's always been pushed through education that China has been kind of isolated from the world. It's us versus them. And that's always in the back of people's minds. And when you pair that with the fact that, you know, today it's run by a one-party state uh, with no, you know, transparent education, they don't really learn anything that the party hasn't approved, that sense of nationalism has always been there. And I don't think it's some, like, inherent hatred, but it's always ready on tap for when the government has to kind of turn the population's eyes away from domestic issues, let's say a housing bubble, let's say the economy going down, let's say the stock market is crashing, Um, all kinds of issues that may be happening that would kind of cause the normal populace in China to start questioning the leadership of the government. They allow instances that they normally wouldn't allow, for example, a protest. You're not allowed to protest in China, but now you're allowed to protest if it's about Japan. You're allowed to overturn Japanese cars. You're allowed to break the windows of a sushi restaurant. In that way, all these people get out their anger and they kind of forget about what actually the issue was initially, the, the thing that sparked this whole cover-up. And you see that with every kind of um, critical moment when China feels like it's losing grip over the population. We can even see it right now 
with the coronavirus, you know, scandal and cover-up as well. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. And uh, <clears throat> for instance, today and yesterday, the day before, um, my African friends living in the southern city of Guangzhou have all been forcefully evicted from their apartments and from the hotels they were staying in. And it's because these, well, these rumors online, not only rumors, but also, you know, state media releases saying that foreigners coming back into China are the ones responsible for spreading the uh, COVID-19 virus. And they post things saying like, oh, Africans came back and tested positive. So suddenly the entire city, all the landlords and everyone kick out all of the African tenants, people that have been there for years. Um, there's a specific guy that I know who he's married to a Chinese uh, woman and he got kicked out of his own apartment while his wife is allowed to stay in the apartment and he's forced to fly back to Africa. And you see, this is just what happens. This is the result of these kind of this rhetoric that uh, it's the foreigners versus us. They've turned the tables to such a point that the local people in China actually believe that this virus is a foreign issue and a foreign problem that's being brought into China without acknowledging the fact that it actually came from China in the first place. And it, for a more psychological explanation of this, like, like you said, this kind of thing, the eviction of, of the Africans in Guangzhou, it's a convenient thing that China does, again, when the questions are surmounting. When people are saying, hey, wait a minute, we actually don't know enough about this, like why this actually happened. Because yeah, there's recently been another outbreak in Guangzhou. It's starting right. to spread again. So they had to point fingers. And so all of a sudden, the Africans are being rounded up and literally sleeping on the streets at the moment. It's, uh, it's, it's just unbelievable. Right. So the psychological explanation I can think of is why in 2006, 2008 for me, all the way up to, let's say, 2012, 2013. Why was it so rosy? Why was it so merry for us? And I think it's very clear those are the good times. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, we were we spoke fluent Chinese at that point, you know, after a few years. So it's not that our understanding became greater. The circumstances change because when every, everyone's making money, everyone's happy, there aren't any there aren't that many domestic issues for China to start getting worried about. Therefore, there's no reason to turn on, on that tap of nationalism and blind hate. But then when there are domestic issues and when the economy does slow down, it's directly, directly related to the soft power propaganda that the government starts spouting that a lot of people tend to buy into, unfortunately. Of course, that yeah. technique that you're describing, you know, blame the foreigners or gin up some sort of a, uh, external enemy when uh, you're trying to distract from your own incompetence. Correct. Um, you know, that's global, right? We all do that. I have a friend mm -hmm. in uh, an Italian buddy who's trapped in Thailand right now because no one will let him come in because he has an Italian passport, even though he hasn't been to Italy mm -hmm. in years. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but do you think that the Chinese um, culture is particularly susceptible to that sort of manipulation? Um, uh, I mean, because there are a lot yes. of the people in the cities are, are coming from tiny little villages with no sense of sort of global politics. Am I right? Yeah, but it's not just that. You see, China has something that the rest of the world doesn't really have. I mean, some some countries do, but it's this ethnocentrism. You see, a com country like America, they can point fingers at another country and say, you are causing problems for us. But Americans aren't really identifiable as a specific race and a specific ethnicity because you can get black Americans and Indian Americans and Asian Americans and whoever, they're still an American. But in China, you only get Chinese Chinese. And so they use that as a way 
to separate themselves from the rest of the world. You know, me as a foreigner, you as a foreigner, we cannot become a Chinese citizen. It is actually not possible. Yet Chinese people can become citizens of other countries. Right. So the, the country, the government constantly pushes this idea that you cannot separate race from nationality and that Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese people and the Chinese country are one thing that cannot be separated. Right. And to answer that uh, a little more directly, Chris, if you look at Chinese as an ethnicity, go to Taiwan, you still have Chinese people. They're ethnically Chinese. They have Chinese culture. They speak Chinese. However, they do not act in the same manner as a mainland person who is susceptible to, you know, communist propaganda from the government. And that is because they have transparent media. They have access to foreign websites. They have an education system that promotes internationalism and, uh, you know, talking to the international community. Um, whereas you have mainland China that has effectively created an intranet that cuts itself off from the entire world and doesn't allow its citizens to access this. And the difference between a place like Taiwan or Hong Kong is they will say, yes, we are ethnically Chinese or we're Taiwanese, but they will not equate their government as their identity. Right. They do not use their political leadership as that's, that's the badge that they carry around, where as the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has been so slick and even in, you know, in Western media and tr basically tricking Western media into thinking that the identity of the CCP is, in fact, the exact same thing or inherently the Chinese identity. So that's creating a huge problem, because if there's any criticism um, from Chinese people abroad or from from foreigners in different countries of the Communist Party of China, because people, I think, inherently want, um, you know, global citizens to be free then all of a sudden it becomes equated with race. And that's a very dangerous mm. thing. And that's actually what's happened very quickly. And yeah, you see, that's why... Oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt no, you. No, no, please. Um, I, just want, Go ahead. I just wanted to add something. That's why in China, me as a South African um, and my friend Matt as an American and my friend who's a Canadian and my friend who's Israeli and my friend who's uh, you know Nigerian or whatever... We are just foreigner. It's just a blank statement, foreigner. And it doesn't matter. They don't take your nationality into consideration at all. Whereas I, I'm pretty sure in the rest of the world, you can kind of say that guy's Italian, that guy's, you know, Polish or whatever. We know that there's a difference in the cultures from where they come from. But in China, it's blanket. It's just like Chinese people and foreigners. They don't differentiate. I, I've, you know, that's yeah, a big thing. I, I've never been to China, but I kind of I've spent a lot of time in Asia and I think that mm -hmm. may be um, sort of an Asian thing, you know, like in Thailand, you're Farang, which, uh, you know, mm, yeah. used to mean French because the French were the, the primary foreigners there. But now mm -hmm. it refers to anyone who's not Thai. Um, I, That's, that is great. Yeah, I travel with, um, the first time I went to Southeast Asia, I was with uh, a Puerto Rican woman and everybody thought she was local. Because she had brown mm. skin, they they could they didn't know that there were Americans with brown skin. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so of course that meant she was a prostitute, and we had to deal with all that everywhere we went, which was right. you know, it was fine in Thailand. But when we got to Malaysia and Indonesia, things got sticky. Um, you know, because sure. of the Islamic um, culture there. Um, but yeah, I I it's interesting to hear you guys talking about China. I first time I went to to um, Asia, I spent about a year and a half in India, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, 
and um, it was late 80s, I guess. And mm. it was hard to go to China at that time. Some yeah. people, I think, were. I, I have a vague memory of some people uh, going there, and it was very kind of isolated and cut off and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I continued traveling in Asia over the years, the 90s and, and, and much later, um, and I never was tempted to go to China because every time I talked to someone who had traveled there, they told me how like impossible it was. Like no one would let you mm-hmm. check into a hotel because they didn't want to have a foreigner mm-hmm. in the hotel. And, you know, it's just like hassle after hassle after hassle. And so when I, I you know, heard about you guys and, and I, I was offered a job teaching English in China, actually, in like mm-hmm. 1990, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and that the job came with a driver and, uh, you know, an yeah. apartment and all this stuff, which of course I realized was like, they wanted to keep an eye on you as a foreigner. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I guess my point is that it never sounded like a welcoming place to me. Um, and mm-hmm. it sounds well, like maybe it's returned to that or that's the true nature of it. But for a while, as you say, it was more welcoming because everything was going so well. Right. That's, that's correct. You see, that whole thing about not being welcoming has always been there under the surface. And Seamilk and myself, Matt and myself, when we travel to the rural areas of China by motorcycle and so on, we often hit situations where they will not allow us to stay in hotels because especially once you get out of the big cities like Shanghai and Beijing, and believe it or not, even in those big cities, there are plenty of hotels that foreigners are not allowed to stay in. But as soon as you get away from the big cities... It's incredibly difficult to find a place that actually allows a foreigner to stay in a hotel. We get massive discrimination, you know, just trying to do basic things. Um, however, because of the massive amount of growth that China saw, especially during the period just prior to and while we were in China, things had changed rapidly. And it's very difficult to comprehend because often I would think as I'd walk around and there's some uh, maybe middle aged to 50, 60, 70-year-old man there, I know that just a couple of decades ago, he was being told that all foreigners were his enemy and that all foreigners are spies and that kind of thing. And to me, I I couldn't really comprehend what a person like that must be thinking, seeing a foreigner like myself walking around on the streets of China, eating at the restaurants, you know, dating a Chinese girl, things like that. Um, You know, it it was kind of uh, difficult to comprehend what they could be thinking. But, of course, they weren't happy about it. I could tell that. Yeah, and the yeah. historical uh, background for it is, that you described earlier, the year, the century of humiliation, of course, that included the Japanese invasion and the, the rape of Nanking and World War mm-hmm. II, which, you know, uh, I've read several what, millions of people died in, in that Japanese campaign. Mm-hmm. Are they as hostile against Japanese as they are against, uh, you know, white people or black people? Absolutely. The the whole anti-Japanese notion is much more fresh in people's memory just because that is what every TV drama, every movie is about. Mm-hmm. And that is just because of the sheer amount of death that China suffered. And it was a horrific incident. But it's one of those things that has conveniently been pushed down everyone's throat all the time, all day, all over media, all over news, so that you know there is a convenient scapegoat when something is going wrong. And I keep going back to that, but it's really important to remember that. And Japan is always going to be, well, at least for the time being, is going to be the go-to let's hate on a country kind of scapegoat. 
Yeah, you know, I have Japanese friends and there were quite a few incidents where we had to pretend that they weren't Japanese. Mm. A very good friend of mine, we were sitting at a bar and these guys came up and they basically asked straight out, is he Japanese? I could see they wanted to fight. And I was like, no, he's from Thailand. You know, he just looks Japanese, things like that. And, you know, I've had to defuse a couple of situations, but it's very hairy. It's a very difficult situation because I've met so many people who are very, very, like, rabidly anti-Japanese. And they, they don't call Japanese people Japanese people. They call them Sharubin Guizu, which means little Japanese ghosts. Mm. You know, it's kind of a common thing. Um, it's just a racial slur that they use on mainstream TV and in posters, and it doesn't matter where. But like uh, Matt said, they constantly show these War of the Resistance dramas on TV, which are, are like fantasies. And everybody watches them, especially in the rural places. They play for free on TVs in the small villages and stuff. And it's always about some evil Japanese coming and doing bad stuff. And then like one or two farmers come and like like kill the entire army with bows and arrows and rocks and stuff. It's it's actually comedic, to be honest, if you want to see it. But uh, it's it's what people kind of believe. Yeah. It's it's crazy. So how how do they, as a culture, how do they square this uh, suspicion and and animosity toward foreigners with the fact that this economic miracle that China has undergone in the last uh, 20 years is based on foreign money. Right. That's conveniently been left out of the entire education sphere and actually just the news in general for the older population. So when 1979, when Deng Xiaoping decided to create this special economic zone, uh, where they're going to practice capitalism, see just see how it went. You know, it had its own borders and walls. It was very much a capitalistic experiment, but it went so well uh, and really took off that everybody decided that it was good to get rich. It was good to get money at that point. Now, everyone at the time that was making you know foreign contacts and foreign getting factories set up in these uh, special economic regions from foreign countries. They were very well aware of why this was happening. But when you go forward, people have a very short attention span and memory when it comes to this sort of stuff, because now China has a ton of domestic companies. There's still foreign companies operating there, but nobody really attributes that to foreign cooperation when they've kind of grown up and gotten used to China being relatively wealthy. Well, it's also another easier explanation, the CCP. Um, you know, what Matt says is 100% true, but the CCP, the Communist Party of China, has taken all the credit for the boom in, in, in the economy in China. They've taken all the credit and they've left out any mention of foreigners actually being a part of mm. that. So that's why you constantly see this this headline that uh, China lifted 800 million people out of poverty. The CCP, the Communist Party, lifted all these people out of poverty, but people kind of forget that it was them that put those people into poverty in the first place. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and you never ever hear anything about the fact that the foreign countries are the ones that set up factories and invested and you know buy all the products and so on. It's not about that. You never hear that. It's only about how strong China is, how great their economy is, and you know how good their products are now, and uh, you know how much better they are than the rest of the world. And that's the narrative that the government pushes, and that's the narrative that everybody eats up. Did you guys study Chinese culture before you went there? Because you're both obviously very knowledgeable about the history and the, the governmental uh, programs and so on. Did you actually study it or, or did you learn this stuff from being there? It's definitely just being there. And same with language. <clears throat> I mean, I went knowing how to like count to 10, basically. And 
uh, when I arrived, I realized how pertinent it was. If you're not going to be that expat that, um, you know, sits at the bar and talks trash with other expats over some beers every day after your English teaching job, if I didn't want to be that guy, it was going to take some serious learning. And it was, you know, consistently and constantly studying the language, making local friends, talking to people, traveling around like a, like Winston said, on our motorcycles, um, just meeting, meeting great people, making very, very close friends and avoiding I mean, what's the point? If you're going to move to a completely exotic country and stay there for a long time, what's the point in completely uh, engrossing yourself in the expat community? You want to get out there. You want to explore. So I think that the whole cultural thing, I would do self-study. I would ask a lot of questions of my Chinese friends just because I had to make sense of of stark differences between their culture and my own. Uh, And that led me to, you know, have a great love for China. And it you know, understand that China is mis it's everything. A lot of things are misconstrued about China, uh, whether it's media or in people's psyches. If they haven't been there, if they haven't actually communicated with people in mainland China, they probably won't have a good understanding of why the way things work. Um, and that's why Winston and I actually started making videos was to kind of show friends and family, number one, to calm down. We're not in danger. And number two, you know, this is kind of the way things work and this is why. And I, we painted China in a very human picture. And that's why I think, and I can, I can say, I can think I can speak for both of us if I say we're a bit bitter now Mm. to see the turn because we devoted our lives. We speak fluent Chinese. We made two very good, positive documentaries showing the beauty of the country. Three now. Yeah. Um, and our YouTube channels, you know, for the first, I would say, 60% of their lifespan was promoting China right. yeah. uh, without without being paid to do so. And when the suspicion mounted, when the government started coming after us nonstop, just because of the way the psyche and rhetoric had, had changed because of the Communist Party's paranoia, um, it leaves you a bit bitter. And it leaves you asking questions because you now have a ton of friends um that kind of question your motives now because you're a foreigner and like you you thought your friendship was stronger than what the government told them was wrong or who whose fault this thing is all of a sudden you're now equated with your own country or your own government when you've successfully separated that stereotype in china with chinese people yeah and uh for me it was actually quite different because when i went to china it was because i was um seeking greener pastures you know south africa is not exactly the most stable country in the world and it definitely doesn't have a lot of opportunity for someone like myself and so i went to china seeking adventure and of course a better station in life and more opportunity one thing that i noticed about the chinese culture and the way things run is also being a developing country like south africa the same sort of corruption and bribery in the way things work in the laws and the government we're something I was used to, so it was easy for me to navigate when I got there and find my way through this whole mess. And I learned a lot about the Chinese culture uh, just by having to figure out how to stay there and how to get jobs and, you know, the the things that were offered to me and the the way things went. Um, And, of course, I learned the language as a necessity as I went along. I've never been interested in Chinese culture as an actual culture, like the history and the Confucius and all that kind of stuff has never been a priority for me. But you learn it and you see how important it is to Chinese culture when you have to deal with people and do business with people there and get work and, uh, you know, just just your average daily life stuff, really. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to, to the feelings you're talking about. I lived in Spain for over 20 years um, mm-hmm. and that 
particularly the the angle where people associate you with a country that you have left mm -hmm. you know that you put a lot mm -hmm. of effort into separating yourself from it gets frustrating yeah. um so let's talk about some of the things we've, we've talked about some of the negatives let's talk about some of the mm -hmm. things that uh you found particularly uh enjoyable or or interesting about china or or things at least that I'm curious about. Now, I know that Matt married a Chinese woman, and Winston, you mentioned dating Chinese women. I don't know <clears throat> if you've married one or not, um, but both of you dealt with sexuality and relationships when you were there. Mm -hmm. What can you say about that? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm married to a Chinese doctor, actually, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've been married now for a couple of years. Um, we have a child too now, um, and it's as far as dating and uh, sexuality and all that. It's it's very different to the West, and I would say in general the the whole uh, dating situation is oh, the, the the women are very naive and inexperienced, and a lot of it comes down to the very traditional way that people are brought up. In fact, the Chinese family unit, the way it works traditionally, and that's still still the same today, is the uh, parents will try and force their children to get married very young. So, you know, in their early 20s, but sort of like 20 to 23, they should be getting married and they should be having a kid straight away. Literally, you're married and you're supposed to pop out a kid within a year or two maximum. And then the grandparents will then come and live with the parents, look after the child while the parents go out and work and earn money. So it's kind of like... It's it's almost like a retirement plan because China doesn't have very good social um, you know systems there. They don't have like retirement funds and things that that people can live off of. So the whole idea is you work hard, you um, have a kid, then your your parents come look after the child, take that burden away from you. They actually raise the child, the grandparents, while the parents go out and earn the money, and then the grandparents have essentially retired. All they have to do is sit at home, cook food look after the child while, you know, the younger adults go out and work and earn the money and uh, that kind of thing. So it's, it, that, that leads to a very difficult dating system because if you're dating someone, the majority of the time, they are expecting to get married. It's part, of, part and parcel of dating someone, you know. Mm. So if you're going to be having sex with someone, it's kind of like you've almost sealed the deal, at least when it comes to the, the sort of more traditional things. So a lot of the girlfriends that I got involved in uh, got involved with in the beginning it very very quickly and i'd say sometimes within weeks sometimes within months marriage would start to get mentioned and they would start to get pressured from their parents and their grandparents to get married and this also led to girlfriends not wanting to let any of their friends or their family know that they were dating a foreigner because they knew straight away that they'd get a lot of trouble for that but also if they mentioned they were dating someone, the pressure for them to get married would be put on them straight away. Yeah, I, yeah. and, and go sorry. Ahead. Oh, I was going to say, this has changed quite drastically. It is not even close to, you know, the levels of promiscuity or just, you know, open dating that we have here in the U.S. Uh, but it's definitely the psyche has changed amongst the younger generation to where it's not uncommon to see a high schooler have a boyfriend or girlfriend now. Something that was absolutely unheard of in, in our generation or our wife's generation. Um, very lacking in sex education. Uh, my wife mentioned, you might find this interesting, she didn't really know that there was a sexual difference between boys and girls until she was like 14. She, she really had no idea. Mm. 
um, you know, she wasn't taught anything about that. Now, when I say it's changed, um, it's still a double-edged sword. So when Winston mentioned that uh, women, when they're dating someone, you know, a very quick talking point after having sex is marriage. That's absolutely true. And the reason for that, um, like you said, is the traditional family values. You kind of, when you seal the deal, that's kind of like what's going to happen. But it's not the same for men. It's very one-sided in that aspect. Uh, China, as a, as a, I don't want to say as a culture, as a country, um, prostitution and massage parlors mistresses. and mistresses are widespread. I mean, it's, this is not like, you know, something having an affair in the U.S., like a, a secret deal. It's, it's widespread. The brothels, the, you know, the temptation, the business practice of, you know, when you make a sign a business deal or you're talking to a potential client, you go to karaoke, you go to KTV and prostitutes come in, they drink with you and you can sleep with them. That is so widespread that, you know, I had a lot of friends. I, I guess I can say Winston and I are not really keen on that idea, mm, yep. but it was so widespread that when you hang out with a lot of your Chinese friends, I mean, it ends up being like that at the end of the night and you're standing there outside waiting for them to finish off. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I've talked to my wife about this. I was like, it does, doesn't that bother Chinese women in China that their husbands, a lot of them are going out and doing this sort of thing. And it's kind of like, she said, it's kind of like something you don't talk about. You kind of know, and it does, it would eat at you. It would bother you because women are not doing the same thing. It's not culturally acceptable. But at the same time, it's it's just kind of solidified in Chinese culture at this point to where it's it's so normal that people have to kind of get over it. You know, you know something that it really contributes to, and all of my relationships that I've had with Chinese women, they're incredibly insecure and untrusting because they're used to this being a part of culture. You know, they've seen their uncles or their fathers or their their other boyfriends or whatever it is kind of participate in this sort of um brothel culture mistress culture etc so if you're out having a couple of drinks with your friends after work or something they at least in my experience i would get phone calls all the time when are you coming back like, what are you doing where are you send me a photo of yourself you know that kind of thing like let me speak to your friend what are you you know huge amounts of insecurity mm-hmm. and um, clinginess and this is i i believe a direct result of this whole sort of uh, prostitute culture really yeah are the mistresses sort of in the running for a relationship is it sort of a parallel relationship or is that a very like clearly defined you know i've got my wife and then you know i'll pay for your apartment or something but there's no way this is ever going to be something more than this well you know um i would say that a lot of the chinese economy was started off by mistresses actually you know when deng xiaoping opened up shenzhen as a special economic zone right next to hong kong um Hong Kongers, because at the time, of course, Hong Kong was very rich and the Hong Kong dollar is worth a lot more than the Chinese RMB, etc. So someone that's a bus driver or, you know, very low level uh, employee in Hong Kong is suddenly like an incredibly rich person in mainland China and they could just hop over the border. So these second wife villages, they're called an Arnaitsuan. Uh, popped up all over Shenzhen and I used to go and hang out in them because it's very vibey at night you've got uh, lots of like street food and you know it's a very vibey situation and basically um, you would get women from all over mainland China would come down to Shenzhen specifically looking to score a Hong Kong rich guy to basically be a mistress and you've got all these apartment blocks in these Arnaitsuan and they're just chock full of you know sort of women with their LV bags and their fancy clothes and stuff and they're living off uh, living in an apartment that's being paid 
uh, full by a Hong Konger. And uh, he has kids with them. It's like it's called Second Wife, like I said. So they have their own little life in Shenzhen and they just pop over on the weekend, spend the weekend in Shenzhen. Then they go back to Hong Kong where they have their other family and their normal job and that kind of thing. So it's it's very common, at least from my experience, because I got to witness this. Yeah. Yeah. What, how is the uh, one child policy reverberating through the culture at this point? It's been around, what, 20 years or so? So these all of this oversupply of boys are becoming men at this point? Yeah. Um, so in terms of the one child policy, it's been changed to the two child policy. You know, thanks. Thanks, Communist Party of China. You get to, you get to control my reproduction. Um, my wife grew up in the one-child policy generation, so she is a single child, uh, grew up with no siblings, therefore it led to her creating siblings out of cousins, basically. So you'll, it's actually quite interesting, if you talk to a mainlander that's a single child, they'll often say my brother or my sister, but actually they're talking about their cousins. Mm, yeah. um, it's this kind of like natural instinct to want to have a sibling in a way. But um, in terms of the surplus of boys, you, we know that in at least in mainland Chinese culture, it's usually been preferable to have a boy as opposed to a girl. If you can't have two children to at least give it another shot and you end up with, you know, a girl, then the the family, in a way, a lot of families will take it to heart and consider themselves having lost face. And you have this surplus, I believe it's up to 50 million men now, which you see documented quite a bit. But it, it's kind of weird because unless you go to the rural areas, you won't see a surplus of men. Women tend to go to the cities. China's a migrant country now. You go to find factory work or work in an office somewhere. So when you go to a place like Shenzhen or Beijing and Shanghai, you actually will see, you, you can see more women than men. There were seven women to one man in Shenzhen when I first arrived there. Right. Wow. Not anymore, but... That's yeah. wild. So the surplus is... If you look yeah, at the numbers, tell me about it. yeah, the surplus. If you look at the figures, um, you know it looks alarming. You're like, what these people are potentially never going to get laid or married, and that's got to cause some social strife. But they're not all in like these ma- major developed areas, right? They're usually at back home on the farms, so you don't see it necessarily. Mm. Yeah, one thing you failed to mention is the little emperors. Yeah, that as well. You know, it's unfortunate, but you have this situation where um, because of the one-child policy you get these incredibly spoiled children because, you know, because of the family unit, you've got the grandparents from both sides of the family um, spoiling the child and, of course, the parents too. And they think they're the center of the universe and that everything they do and say will be done. So you have these very spoiled individuals now coming of age uh, who've always been given everything that they've ever dreamed of, who've never known poverty like their parents and grandparents. And it's causing a lot of issues with society, you see a lot of people freaking out and throwing tantrums in public when they don't get what they want. You know, I can only imagine when they become the leaders of the country just how bad it's going to be. Yeah, I, I worry that with 50 million surplus men, that's a, a real um, temptation to, to go to war, you know? Well, I mean, it, you don't need to worry too much about that because, first of all, like we mentioned, prostitution is, a, is rife. And so, you know, these guys still manage to satisfy their needs but on top of that they import or smuggle in or human traffic wives in from vietnam indonesia places like that you've got agents that go from village to village supplying wives they sell wives from wherever and there's actually a pretty funny story that we we had a a while ago where there was an agent and what he'd do is he would um bus in like he would negotiate with the villages and they would uh, pay for their 
um, Vietnamese wives, and he'd bust them in. So each villager got a got a wife, and uh, so the wives would get, get the money, the agent would get the money, they'd stay for like a week or something, and then he would come secretly in the night and then smuggle them all out again and take them to the next village. So he was just fleecing the entire countryside of all their money buying these wives. It's <laughs> kind of hilarious. They never caught up with him? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you better hope they don't. Yeah. So one thing that, that really interests me when I travel um, and that I find sort of very difficult to explain is differences in sense of humor. Can you say anything about mm. the Chinese? Is there a Chinese sense of humor? Are there like Chinese stand-up comics or what are Chinese jokes like? <laughs> that That's a joke in itself. <laughs> well, actually, there are there is a burgeoning scene for um, Chinese stand-up comedians and it started in Shanghai because uh, foreigners started doing it, basically. And a good example is this guy from Canada. His name is Dashan. Yeah. And he was one of the first kind of white dudes that showed up to uh, to China. He studied, you know, Chinese for the, the most majority of his life. Right? Yeah, his Chinese is better than most Chinese people. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's on a scholarly level. But anyway, he he began to do kind of this stand-up comedy. Cross-talk. Yeah, cross-talk, yeah. Chinese comedy. Um, and he was a novelty because he was a white guy doing it. Um that being said, it was very much in line with the things that you would see uh, every year on the Chinese New Year galas. It's more skit-based. Slapstick, uh, very, slapstick. very, very slapstick sense of humor. Mm. I, I can tell you um, a Chinese joke. Now, what's funny is that when you speak Chinese and you try to do plays on words like what we might do in English, it doesn't ever work in Chinese mm. because it's a tonal language. Mm -hmm. So when you change the tone, it deletes the actual inherent meaning of the word, even though Winston and I will understand it because it sounds similar to us. Sure. It doesn't make sense to a Chinese person. Um, a, a Chinese joke that baffled me, and to this day I can't understand why it was funny. Um, I'll, I'll try to translate it into English. And this, this is one I heard quite often. Um, basically, there's a, a polar bear and that lives in the North Pole, and he's super lonely. He realizes he's the only like sentient being around, and he's lonely, and he decides to make the arduous journey down to the South Pole because he heard that there were penguins there, and they also like to live in the cold. So he goes down there, uh, you know, spends years and years trying to make his way down there, finally arrives, meets the penguins, but the penguins say to him, I don't want to be your friend. So then he has to go all the way back home, and he's lonely again. That's the joke. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? I I heard that the first time, and I still, I, I can't even get my wife to explain. She's like, it's just it's just one of those things. And I was like, the first time I heard it, I replied. I actually made a punchline because I felt so awkward. I said, that's cold. That's cold. And no one laughed. Yeah. No one laughed. They, like, went deadpan. I ruined the joke. Wow. The thing is, a lot of, in fact, the majority of the jokes are all about wordplay, you know, Chinese wordplay, because you get words that mean the same thing. Right. My point you was know? you can't change the tone. Yes, you, you can't. Know, and it doesn't, yeah. yeah. So unless you understand the language, a lot of the jokes don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Slapstick, definitely, though. If you watch yeah. mainland Chinese movies, a lot of them do have comedic elements, and it's Sorry. always people falling over, getting yeah. hurt. Slip on a banana peel. Fart you know? jokes. Yeah, smack into a wall, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. right. What about Eating food? a hot chili, you know? Yeah. Speaking of hot chilies, yeah. What what about mm -hmm. uh, yeah. food? I th one of the thing one of the reasons that I really haven't traveled in China is that I I don't find the food appetizing. Um, mm -hmm. Am I ignorant about that, or or is the sort of I'm, sense I, that Chinese eat all sorts of bizarre stuff true? I think that it can go both ways. So if you did only grow up eating a certain region of Chinese cuisine, 
That's one of those misconceptions. People think they've understood Chinese food when, in fact, they probably don't. Yeah. So, for example, I don't like Shanghai food very much. I find it too sweet. It's too cloying. It's too sticky. Um, but it's wildly different than the food you would find in northeast China in Dongbei, which is very hearty. A lot of meat, a lot of bread, a lot of dumplings, a lot of dumplings. Mm-hmm. Things you wouldn't find elsewhere. You go down south; that's where you find the weird stuff. Yeah. You go to central China; it's all spicy food. It's delicious. Mm-hmm. Go to Inner Mongolia; it's Mongolian food. It's it's you know it's roast lamb. Go to Xinjiang, yeah. Western China; you're eating um, skewered shish kebabs and rice and pilaf and all this kind and of stuff. You'd non bread stuff you'd find in the Middle East or Central Asia. So the food diversity is staggering. We have to admit it's. It's crazy different. Pretty much every province has their own cuisine. Um, so I think it's easy for a foreigner to find something that they tend to like. But what I've noticed is that they tend to like Western Chinese food, you know, the Muslim region. And then they tend to like Northeastern Chinese food. That's, that's right, definitely. You know, the thing is, it's not all sweet and sour prawn balls or whatever. No. In fact, you don't get that stuff in China. Right. Uh, Western Chinese food... Uh, it does not represent actual Chinese food. And you're not saying yeah. Western China. You're saying yeah, in the we- West. Western, yeah. Western, in the West, Chinese food, yeah. you know, like yeah. chow, chow mein or whatever. It's not the same stuff. You get some things which are you'd find in China, but it's really not the same. The thing is down in the south in Guangdong, that's where all the weird stuff is eaten, like, uh, like Matt mentioned. And some of it is absolutely repulsive. And especially to Western people, you know, you don't want to eat... Uh, a dog, for instance, or a cat, or you know the 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 foot of a chicken, or a, you know the the I don't know the head of a pig or something, and um, you don't want to drink the blood of something. It's, there's <laughs> there's like some really horrible things down south, but at the same time, you also get dim sum from the south. You know, that's Cantonese cuisine, and that's pretty much the same. If you have dim sum in the west, you're having kind of what you get in uh, in you know Guang Guang Guangdong and. Uh, uh, Hong Kong, etc. I've I've been really impressed recently. As we live in LA, and I, you know, when I was growing up in America, it was just American Chinese food. Yeah. In fact, my most popular video is my wife going to America for the first time, trying Chinese American food and rating its authenticity. Yeah. And she was just like, "This is not Chinese food, sure. more or less." Um, you know, so I grew up eating that, and then here in LA, we have we can pretty much eat at every province. Yeah. We can sample stuff from Sichuan, from Gansu, from and Qinghai, it's legit. and it's legit because mm. the people move from those regions. And but it's, it's, it's not Kung Fu Panda or chopstick pickup sticks. Yeah, or it's not those or, lame, yeah. you know, those lame chains. It's yeah. there's real traditional Chinese food from every province in the U.S. and I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. That's the thing about Chinese food is you you really have to explore all the different uh, cuisines, and then you can pick and choose what you like. But as a foreigner living there, you kind of do find it very limiting because you don't get foreign cuisines mm. in China. So think about it as an American. If you were limited to only eating, say, uh, pizza, hamburgers, hot dogs, and barbecue, you know, those main things, and that's all you've got. You can choose, you can pick and choose, but you don't have Italian food, you know, and you don't have Japanese food, and you Afghan don't have food. Indian food or Greek food. You don't have those options. That's what China's like. You're actually very limited because there is no proper authentic other country food, right. international food, I should say, uh, because first of all, they don't have a taste for it. And second of all, they just don't have immigrants that can cook it. So mm-hmm. you, you really are limited. And as a foreigner and any foreigner who's lived in China for any length of time, they will tell you that you get days where you just want a damn sandwich. Right. It you does know? happen. Yeah. yeah. I remember being in Asia for a few months and finally going to a McDonald's and being ashamed yeah, of myself yeah. but i just i just needed a burger <laughs> so bad you know 
Um, right. You know, what you guys were saying about, about the diversity of the food reminded me of something I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about the sort of overbearing influence of the, of the Chinese government and this sort of um, very insistent development of the Chinese identity as opposed to foreigners. Um, and I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you, like, uh, but what we're talking about Han Chinese, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah. there's also a lot of cultural, as you mentioned in the food context, a lot of cultural diversity within China, the Uyghurs mm -hmm. and the Tibetans and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Is, do, you, do you think that's a major problem? Because that's sort of presented as like China is fracturing, you know, in the foreign press. Um, yeah. Do you think that's the reality? This is, this is something I've always been interested in. And I think it's this whole American underdog situation. So when I found out about the 56 eth ethnic minorities in China, I've always tended to gravitate towards those regions because mm -hmm. they were different than the cookie cutter cities you get in, you know, the majority of Han places. If you go to Eastern China, pretty much everywhere looks the same. I hate to say it. Yep. And it's just the way that development worked and happened so quickly. There wasn't a whole lot of architectural like uh, in ingenuity or creativity that happened. Uh, but when you tend to go to these rural areas where there are minorities that aren't even Han Chinese, they, they've retained a lot of their culture that, um, you know, most of mainland China has left behind in the pursuit of money and wealth. So you have minorities that have successfully integrated. I say successfully because it was more imposed on them uh, in the southern minorities. Let's say the Zhuang people, the Miao people, uh, people that have been surrounded by Han areas, typically you know, they're at war in the 14, 1500s, but now have successfully integrated. They can speak their local language, but now predominantly speak Mandarin, especially the children. Um, a lot of their traditions have left them to the point where it's a tourist trap where you put on, you know, meow ethnic, ethnic clothes. Then you have places that have retained their culture, like the Uyghurs, like the Tibetans, because they're very, very different than East Asian culture. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You're Sorry. Let um, you continue. So... I would say, oh, and the Mongolians, diametrically opposed to, if you look at a Mongolian culture and the way things work, it's diametrically opposed to Han Chinese culture. Collectivism? No. Individualism. Um, you know, a lot of people in a tight place? No. Nomads that get sent out when they're teenagers to go become a man or a woman. Very, very different. Yet there's 5 million inner Mongolian people that are ethnically Mongolian that do not share the same culture as the Han Chinese. These three groups... The Mongolians, the Tibetans, and the Uyghurs have the most potential and most pushback against the Chinese government. The majority of them that I've ever met do not want to be in China. The kind of threat of them splintering off into different areas and groups, it's literally impossible. They are silenced. They are subdued. We've found this throughout our travels. Um, they're forced through education to not speak their own language anymore. They have to speak Mandarin. There's huge military installations in these areas that would always shut down any sort of protest or uprising. Um, pretty much the province can go on lockdown when some one contentious incident happens. So, you know, the Chinese government has really successfully put Han installations in these areas to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah I've got to say that um, I, I differ a little bit from from Matt because... He's always, always calling the minor, minority report yeah. guy. As we drive and ride our motorcycles through China, he's like, this is the Hongmiao minority area where they, you know, make silk in the mountains or something. And I'm like, shut up. There's no difference between this and that city 2,000 kilometers away that we just left. They're the same signs, the same shops, the same attitudes, the same questions, 
the same way of life in every single way. The only difference is these guys are wearing cheap factory-made costumes to make them look different. That's so honeyfied that you cannot tell the difference. There, I'd said it multiple times during our trips and our, you know, conquering southern China and northern China stuff. If you knocked me out in Guangdong in the middle of a city and I woke up here, which is like on the other side of China, I would not know that I'd left because it looks exactly the same. And the Han culture has so successfully honeyfied all these little ethnic minority areas that quite literally you can't tell the difference between one city and the next. It's actually quite devastating because I would love to see more diversity. Where he is correct, though, is in Inner Mongolia, you can tell the people there are different. And of course, in Xinjiang, which we're not allowed to go to as foreigners, it's different there and Tibet. But otherwise, it's very difficult to tell any significant difference between the peoples and the, the cultures. Yeah, can I say something about that? Sure. I think that was one of those things where I, the reason I studied so much on this, I felt like in part that I could help preserve, if I documented, help preserve this lost culture. Because mm -hmm. you're right, when you go to these areas, I'm Googling stuff to find out about them. I'm asking about them. They don't, some of these people don't even know. No, right? they don't it's even know. Dude, you, can, you can ask them. And, and it's devastating. And a lot of them are just Hun, Hun people dressed up in the costumes anyway. Yeah, and you know? it's devastating because it's this government-promoted thing is uh, the CCP loves to use this. We are the 56 ethnic minorities, yet we're all one. China, they have parades all the time with mm -hmm. representatives. Meanwhile, you know, a lot of these people are not super happy that their areas become honified. No, and it seems like they've retroactively tried to um, take people that they indoctrinated and made them exactly the same as everyone else and all of a sudden say oh you know what you're actually a minority so you got to wear these clothes and we're going to make a make your houses a little different color mm. or something like that but uh and and the people don't really understand why but okay it's a tourist trap we make money that's fine um it's soulless it's absolutely soulless and having traveled the entirety of china left right up down central doesn't matter um you know you you get to see that there was something beautiful there and it's no longer there. Yeah, the, to go back on that real quick, though, when we do travel through rural China, yeah. it's amazing. People yeah. are so nice. And when you finally meet the people that haven't been, not to say the people in the cities are bad. Of course they are not. Well, That's where most of my friends are from. But yeah. when you meet the people in the countryside that have an inkling of maybe that lost culture or just are so shocked and happy to see you, giving, giving you like a sweet potato that they only have two of because the yeah, harvest wasn't yeah. good that year. Very interesting and down-to-earth people that haven't fully been indoctrinated into this us-versus-them mentality. That was a very special moment every time we left the major cities in Absolutely. China. Absolutely. I, I will put that down to the difference between city dwellers and, and rural folk. You get that everywhere in the world. For sure. For people sure. that are living a little bit more simple out in the middle of nowhere way friendlier and gen more generous than you know the people living the rat race in the cities. Yeah, but I think it's exacerbated in mainland China because the wealth gap is so severe. It's massive, yeah. massive. We've been in parts of China where the children are walking out around without shoes on and you know it's they're eating rats. Yeah, it's just yeah, it, it's it's a very different situation and then you got the big major cities where you know it's on par with the the richest cities in the world, you know, people driving around in in supercars and with LV bags and whatever else, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. Different. yeah, I think I agree with you that it does tend to be universal that people with less money are more generous. They're, they need, they mm -hmm. need each other. Yeah. They depend on each other mm -hmm. uh, for survival. That's something I've written right. about in, in my books. Um, you guys have been really generous with your time and, and your expertise. I, I, I've learned so much Thank in you. the last hour here. I just want to sort of wrap up by asking, where do you see things going? Um, you know, it 
definitely seems to me that we're in the uh, final days of the American empire. It's collapsing before mm -hmm. our eyes by the hour here. Um, the conventional wisdom is that China is the rising global force mm -hmm. uh, and that this century will be largely uh, dominated by China. But I'm wondering, listening to you guys, I'm wondering if China can maintain the economic power if the world reconfigures in a way that it seems it may be um, with much less globalization and international trade um, due to viruses mm -hmm. and, you know, the way this has spread so quickly and done so much damage. What, mm -hmm. What's your take on this? Do you think China is going to be the, the dominant global power in the next 50 years or, or not? I, I would say a hard no on that one. Um, I want to end my whole kind of monologue about this by saying that I think Winston would agree with me. We want to see a transparent and open and friendly China that gets along with the rest of the world. But really, the only way we can do this at this point is to stop empowering an authoritarian government like the CCP that treats its own people so poorly and when we, and again, this is why we bring this up when we think it's so important, is that when we saw the shift throughout 10 to 14 years in China, respectively, we, we saw the palpable shift. We didn't change. We, nothing about us changed. We were the same friendly, smiley guys that had tons of friends all over the place and everyone loved us versus not that anymore. And now the government wants us to leave, more or less. So I don't think a global superpower can act like that when it blatantly changes its rhetoric and lies to its own people and the rest of the world, there's only so much deceit and trickery that can happen before that has global consequences where people just don't want to deal with you anymore. And you're seeing a lot of companies pull out of China right now, moving manufacturing, decoupling almost completely. And until there is domestic change in China and there is some sort of free, like free aspect where people can openly communicate to each other, I don't see China being an influential player on the world stage. You know, um, in the West, we have a saying, don't judge a book by its cover. But in China, the saying is, judge a book only by its cover. In fact, don't even bother writing anything inside the book. The cover just has to be spectacular so that everyone sees it and is in awe. And that's what the, the government has been doing for decades now. That's why you have this impression that China is going to be the next big thing or the next world leader, because it actually isn't. Um, face culture mm. is what drives the Chinese government. The pride and impression that the rest of the world has is more important than what China can actually offer. So when it comes down to brass tacks and China actually has to deliver on any of these so-called... Um, um, promises or ideas that they've been putting out, you'll find that they're very lacking. And China itself has a very good way to describe themselves, and that is a paper tiger. Mm. Um, this is something that only if you've lived there and dealt with the Chinese government and seen exactly what China is about would you understand. There's no doubt that China is a powerful country. Yeah, I think one of the big things that we're trying to do the most is to push this idea that the Chinese government is not the Chinese people. Yeah. And we have to differentiate between the two. Exactly. You know, because that's, that's the downfall at the moment of relations between, you know, the West and China and all that is China has weaponized its own peoples against you know, anyone they don't agree with. And we have to separate it because the mistakes that the Chinese government makes and its arrogance and the way it parades itself around does not reflect the common China Chinese person, yeah. you know, the people that we fell in love with and uh, married and, you know, have so much affinity for. It's two different things. And uh, that's a big mission of mine is to make sure Agreed. that uh, people understand that.
fascinating dudes, huh? I really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you did too. I um, I wanted to jump in here for a couple of reasons at the end. One is to um, sort of wrap up the conversation because the, um, the recording got muddled there at at the end. I had to cut a little bit of it where my voice wasn't in sync with theirs. And because the original files are on my computer and not this computer, I can't fix it. Um, but it's just the last few minutes um, where we talked about some of their recent work. I wanted to let you know that they, their two movies uh, are Conquering Northern China and Conquering Southern China. Conquering Southern China is free on Amazon Prime right now, and they're both on Amazon Prime and Vimeo. Um, they have um, ADV China is uh, Adventure China is one of their channels. And they also do the ADV podcast, um, I guess, weekly. And um, they did a, a, a documentary called Stay Awesome China, which you can also look up. So I just wanted to make sure we got all that information out there. And I wanted to remind you once again about Kettle and Fire and to check out that bone broth, which is absolutely delicious. Kettle and Fire, K-E-T-T-L-E-A-N-D-F-I-R-E dot com forward slash Chris Ryan and use the discount code Chris for 15% off and free shipping for orders of six cartons or more. It's good stuff. Uh, thank you again for your attention and I will say goodbye now. I will play you out with the normal outro of my mom talking about what's in the garage, which she calls the cottage very cutely. I'm not sure it's a cottage, but it's a garage with, you know, walls. Um, and uh, Carsey Blanton, as always, the wonderful Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm just for you. To remind you, as always, you're going to die one day. Hopefully not soon, uh, but sooner or later. All right. Thanks, guys. And ladies, women, gals, catch you next time. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's to right. death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Dance into the ground. 